Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watch X-Men Dark Phoenix, the latest and last movie in the X-Men franchise. We are both tremendous X-Men fans. Um, This franchise is notoriously patchy. It runs the gamut from extremely good to extremely bad, often in the same film, uh, because the, (laughs) the casting is all over the place and often they just kind of forget to give roles to the women. And yet we still have this strange affection for this franchise, which is weirder than the rather more kind of banal sincerity of the MCU where everything's more formulaic. Anyway, this one is the second attempt to make a film of the Dark Phoenix comic storyline, which is about Jean Grey slash Phoenix getting a bunch of powers from space, um, getting too much power and then dying. This one is the worst, is the worst reviewed in the franchise. Um, We're going to be talking about spoilers because can you imagine caring about spoilers for this film? No, we cannot. Yeah, it's bad. Bad. Yeah. It's so bad. I, I, I enjoyed it, but it was bad. Um, well, I enjoyed some parts. And also, the key thing to know about this film is that in the original early 2000s X-Men trilogy, the third film in the trilogy was once again a Dark Phoenix adv- ad- adaptation, X-Men The Last Stand, which is infamously the worst film in the series. It was written by Simon Kinberg, who then went on to write like all of the later X-Men films and directed this as his directorial debut. So it's like the quintessential white man fails upwards in Hollywood story where they gave him a second go and he somehow, I think, made it worse the second time round, which is impressive. Yeah. The Last Stand is the only one of the major X-Men films I've not seen. I haven't seen a couple of the earlier Wolverine movies either because who cares? Yeah. Um, But I've seen um, X-Men and X2 because they're the good ones and they're they're great. And I never bothered to see The Last Stand because it's so famously awful, so why bother? So I was not familiar with the plot of this. I mean, I had read and things, so I was vaguely aware, but I hadn't seen a version of this before. But I did know that he was the person who had written that and then somehow stayed attached to the franchise and had worked with Brian Singer on various movies and then also with Matthew Vaughn and Jane Goldman on um, First Class. So it's not like he was the sole author of all of these, but he's been a key figure in the franchise. Interestingly, he also wrote Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is a great movie. That was his thesis screenplay for his MFA at the Columbia Film School, which I know because I had a professor at Columbia for screenwriting who had been his professor and he liked to talk about this all the time as an example of like, you don't have to write like hoity-toity art screenplays, but like, this is also a legitimate thing. And it's really hard to do something like that. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith is a really smart and interesting pop film screenplay, right? So he goes from that to doing this garbage. And I don't (laughs) understand. It's a mystery. Like the earlier X-Men prequels are good. So the first X-Men prequel, obviously we all love and it's like really emotionally interesting and it's really fun to watch, although that's more kind of to do with performance and direction. But like X-Men Days of Future Past is a really complicated piece of writing for this type of film because it's got like all these fucking timelines all over the place. It, like this, is an adaptation of a comic book. And obviously, like most superhero movies that kind of directly adapt a comic, they make quite a lot of changes because like you have to. Um, So in Days of Future Past, they kind of famously swapped the female lead for Wolverine, which worked in the movie, but I'm still annoyed by because it would have been great to see like Kitty Pryde as the protagonist. But with this one, this is basically one of the most kind of famous and popular 
X-Men comics and Marvel comics in general just as like a self-contained storyline and it is such an obvious choice for a movie or a TV show that you could just do a fairly direct adaptation with like no major changes and it'd be like well done you've got a full arc and instead they fucked it up in two different ways for no reason (laughs) because like just because Morgan hasn't read the comic and I assume probably most of the listeners haven't either I will just give you a quick summary Jean Grey, you know, she has her kind of psychic and telekinetic powers and is a member of the X-Men team. And in the comics, this was the comic that kind of made her into a powerful character rather than sort of the token female lead. Because by that point, the comics had been around for about 15 years, like the original teenage group of X-Men had grown up. Um, But she was like, maybe not as like highly valued as some of the others, because it's quite hard to kind of illustrate her power compared to someone who can like fling ice blasts or whatever, you know. So she absorbs this power called the Phoenix Force from space and suddenly gets far too powerful and has to kind of deal with handling all these kind of new abilities and so forth. Um, And meanwhile, the X-Men kind of get dragged into this intergalactic battle between uh, the kind of royals. It's like a civil war in this alien society. And kind of the issue is that like they are also aware of the Phoenix Force and there's kind of like power struggles over who can control it and so on. And um, the first part of the arc is her kind of coming to terms with the fact that she has the Phoenix Force. And the second part is like the fall part of the rise and fall where she kind of goes to the dark side. And it's very similar to Rey and Kylo Ren's relationship in The in the Last Jedi because the person who sort of like molds her journey over the over to the dark side is this sort of seductive supervillain guy called Jason Wingard, who is actually like a kind of a mentalist kind of shapeshifter guy who gives the illusion of being this sort of 18th century evil country gentleman who gives her these visions that she's an 18th century leader and kind of seduces her to be part of his like bondage team called the Hellfire Club who were used in the first X-Men movie. Um, But basically it's sort of like a psychosexual thing where it's all about how in her earlier years as an X-Man she was always kind of dominated by the powerful men in her life like her boyfriend Cyclops and the team leader uh, Professor X and now she's like oh yes I'm now going to finally gain control of my power by being seduced by this evil sexy man instead which is and then kind of the turning point is when she realizes that she's actually more powerful than him and breaks free and kind of becomes this godlike figure. And the kind of story ends with her realizing that she can't be in control of this and dying. And that's kind of the first major death of Jean Grey in the comics, right? And it is like a really interesting character arc for her. And it would have been a cool thing to adapt. Maybe they couldn't have kept all the Bondage Club stuff in there because uh, it's quite dated and silly. But like, you can have equivalents. And instead, in the movie, they replace the antagonists with just this random alien unrelated to the comics played by Jessica Chastain who has, and I'm really not exaggerating here, no role. (laughs) She does not have a personality. And her motive is just like, we really need to get the Phoenix Force out of Sophie Turner so we can, you know, obliterate planet Earth and move there instead. But there's like nothing, no further world building. It is atrocious. It's so boring. It was shocking. And like, I have been warned that she had no personality in this film, but it was, it was wild. They hired Jessica Chastain of all people. Jessica fucking Chastain. She does nothing. She has very blonde hair. That's her only personality trait, is that she's very blonde. Like, what? And the fact that they made up a new character for this is just hysterical. It's like, oh yes, we've got this great role for you. It's even worse than when Oscar Isaac had to play Apocalypse in the last film. (laughs) Who knew they could be worse? (laughs) I mean, Apocalypse was really grim, but at least he got to, like, give some monologues, right? And this is I mean, obviously she also kind of has dialogue, but, like, mind-boggling. So... She is producing, Jessica Chastain is producing 
this sort of big, like, female-fronted spy thriller movie with yeah. a bunch of famous actresses from various countries. And she has hired Simon Kinberg to direct it. I can only assume he's a hypnotist, because Jennifer Lawrence said she would only be in this film if Simon Kinberg was directing. And it's like, he's never directed before. What is he doing? Your roles are both shit. He's given you both bad roles. Right. And so the roles are bad. He's a man, which like doesn't mean you can't direct, but for a movie that's specifically about female spies, that's kind and Jessica Chastain is like at the forefront of like the Hollywood fight for equality for women and is very sincere about that and I think is a like genuine Oh for person sure, absolutely. Of, right? So it's mystifying. It's kind of surprising to me that she actually didn't hire a female director for that. And the, so those two things, and having now seen this movie, he can't direct for shit. The visual is are so bad. All of the fighting is like painful to watch because he clearly can't do it. There isn't very much Quicksilver in this movie, which I wondered about that, but who can say? But the little bit of Quicksilver there is, it's really badly done. Like all the sort of like verb and effervescence of those scenes from um, Days of Future Past in particular just don't translate at all because it's badly executed. Like it just isn't there. So... With all of those things together, I was like, okay, so this is clearly why he's still working on these movies and like getting hired for stuff is he must have just outrageous personal charisma, right? There's no other explanation because he sucks. He because sucks. Because the casting quality, the quality of the people in this film is absurd, right? Because all of the X-Men movies are extraordinarily well cast. Like one of the greatest strengths of the original trilogy is that they had like perfect casting for everyone apart from Storm who was massively shafted as she is in this film with a new actress. But in this movie, you literally have Jennifer Lawrence and she has now been in four of these films and her roles are just unprecedentedly bad. It's kind of as if they don't realise that they have Jennifer Lawrence and instead they're like, oh, it's this, like, maybe someone who is the second most important actress in, like, some CW show, right? Right. Because, and also, it's like, I'm not even, like, the world's hugest Jennifer Lawrence stan. Like, you know, like many actors, she has, like, certain areas in which she's good and certain areas where she's not well cast. And I think that Mystique is not a good role for her. But also, considering the fact that they basically changed Mystique's entire role in this franchise anyway, they could have really made her into any character, and instead, they're just like, how about she just is really inconsistent and boring at the same time? And they haven't really figured out what age she's meant to be, because she's always kind of infantilized by the narrative, as well as being infantilized by Charles Xavier, her brother. And in this film, they've kind of made it that she's the team leader of the X-Men, rather than being like morally ambiguous like she is in any of the other movies and comics. And she's kind of the older authority figure, which chronologically makes sense because hilariously in this film, she and Fassbender and McAvoy are all playing characters who are about 60 years old. And it's like, fine, okay, she's a shapeshifter. She looks 29. But also she's like the authority figure to a bunch of people who look the same age as her and her role is shit. And then obviously she gets killed off like in the first half hour of the film. And I was like, okay, I get it now. Jennifer Lawrence just wanted to leave. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She was out. (laughs) Pay me my money. And I'm gone. But just, I respect that. But like frankly. Jessica Chastain and her are both in this film. And it's like, the thing I said in my review was just like, I enjoyed some aspects of this film because I love the X-Men and I'm really invested in the concept. So a lot of the things I was enjoying were things that were already in my mind or sort of carrying over from the other films. And also McAvoy and Fassbender genuinely are just really great and they have a fantastic rapport that carries over from the earlier films. But this is a movie with a female protagonist that's meant to be all about her journey, where you have two really famous women in the supporting cast, Jessica Chastain and Jennifer Lawrence. All three of them have like astoundingly shit roles. 
And it's like, what have you done? How have you managed to make this film allegedly about Sophie Turner playing Dark, playing Dark Phoenix? And then it's like, why don't care about any scene she's in? Like, well, how have you managed this? <laughs> All the stuff with Sophie Turner was so grim. Apart from her makeup, of course, which is famously astounding. Her really. makeup was... was <laughs> she looks like a YouTube tutorial. Yeah. The whole time. Sophie Turner, I've obviously only ever seen on Game of Thrones. She hasn't done a ton of other stuff because she's been busy with that. I watched the first three seasons of Game of Thrones and then stopped because I was like, fuck this, I don't care. But one of the few things I really, really enjoyed in that was, of course, Sansa, because she is one of the best characters. Sophie Turner's fantastic on this sh- that show. This is not a slight on Sophie Turner's And also, Sophie ability. Turner can do comedy as well. So it's like, she has range. <laughs> she is terrible in this movie. It's bad. Not, not her fault, clearly. Because the writing and the direction is so bad that, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But every line of dialogue that she attempts to deliver, I was just like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, this is the thing, right? Because like the dialogue in the X Men franchise is routinely bad, but the casting is so high caliber that you're like, my God, Patrick Stewart, what a brilliant job! Right. He's got like ten years of Star Trek under his belt doing other terrible dialogue, <gasps> and in this, it's like you've got like Magaboy and Fast Bend, you're like, it, it's a real skill. Like you really need to have extensive experience to do that, and most of them do not and cannot. <laughs> right, and the two of them have been doing those characters, as you said, yeah, for a long time now, and so there, it's I think it must be a kind of muscle memory thing, yeah. And the big problem with this movie, I mean, there are so many problems, but the biggest, I think, is that... Who is Jean Grey? Well, yes. They're trying to make the plot about the teenagers, or like early 20s or whatever age they're supposed to be now. The the younger people. Mm-hmm. But like, who gives a shit? Who are these people? Like, they kind of introduced them in Apocalypse, but they didn't do a very good job. There's an equivalent time jump between that movie and this movie as with the other films, but they shift everyone's circumstances so dramatically that it feels like you've missed a huge amount of stuff. Yeah. And now we're just supposed to like be invested in these people in a way that we definitely aren't. And there's also kind of the ghost of the early 2000s movies, right? Because yes. Cyclops and Jean Grey in those films were fantastic, right? They were really great. And in these ones, it's like, I don't have anything against Ty Sheridan, like, as an actor, but I don't really know what they're doing with Cyclops there. He's just kind of boyfriend. <laughs> well, right. And I've seen, he's a really good actor. I've seen him in other movies where he has a real role, and he's great. But this role is not a real role, and so, okay. And the difference between First Class and the first X-Men movie is that Professor X and Magneto are obviously really great in the first X-Men movie, but they are not the main characters. The main yeah. characters of that film are Wolverine and Rogue, and then all the other sort of younger people have really good roles too. So for in terms of establishing the franchise in that first movie, that first X-Men movie, they do a really good job of making you understand who all of these people are. And they're really relatable. Like Rogue is still probably the most relatable character in the whole franchise. Yes. I, again, haven't seen the earlier version of this, but then when you move on to the second X-Men movie, you get all of these people, the whole situation with Logan and um, Gene and Scott. Like, you get it. You understand what's going on. You're invested in it. Whereas First Class completely is all about Charles and Eric, right? Like, that is what is going on in that movie. But, like, they also have some charming teens who they get rid of. So all the teens from First Class are now gone, They've introduced Quicksilver in uh, Days of Future Past, and then he's out of this one, which again, I kind of wondered about, but... Um, and so 
then they like shove a bunch of new teens into Apocalypse, but there's no, they just haven't, you don't care about them anymore. Like, and it's also like the continuing presence of Beast, who has like a really overinflated role. Because he was in kind of the last movie as essentially he's the one person who stuck around with Professor X in the Apocalypse storyline and was sort of essentially his carer in some ways. But the way they've kind of given, the, the, the role they've given to Beast in this franchise is fundamentally not very interesting. And they've also got quite a good actor playing him, Nicholas Holt, but not giving him much to do. And it's like, then you've got like that problem of giving him this really central role in this while still being quite boring. And also it's like, kind of in addition to the fact that they keep really centering all of the white male characters in this while doing the kind of the bigotry allegory, which obviously is like a consistent problem throughout the franchise, but works better in some films than others because some of them like really do engage with the allegory in an effective way. And otherwise it's just like in this one, you're like, well, why are all of the scenes just about Charles again? Because the kind of the key conflict in like the first half of this movie is that Charles unintentionally created a lot of Jean Grey's psychological problems because he shut down some of her memories so she wouldn't have traumatic memories of her childhood and wouldn't blame herself for her mother's death and sort of hid from her that her father's still alive and rejected her because she was a mutant. And now she's got all these superpowers, she's able to regain her own memories. And obviously this is Charles' fault once again because he is this really overbearing figure who's kind of this classic patriarchal leader guy who thinks he knows best. And that's like a, like Charles is really well characterized and very consistent throughout the franchise in a way that ties in with the comics. But then the way that story is executed in the movie, instead of it being like, oh, I feel so bad for Jean, you're like, oh, this is a really interesting role for James McAvoy. (laughs) Exactly. 100%. Yes. And, and then they don't even like follow through with that. Right? Like he kind of just waffles along and then the movie's like, well, but he meant well, so. But of course, the ending, as we know, they had to reshoot the ending. Yeah. They refilmed the whole final act of this movie, so we don't know what happened originally, but apparently they reshot it because it was too fam- too similar to another film. And I think the smart money is definitely on Captain Marvel, because that's oh, yeah. also about like a young woman who has this power and like doesn't remember part of her past. And like one of the major influences in her life is this male mentor who manipulates her, right? So it's like the final act, even the one that we do still get in the film kind of somewhat resembles that like superficially but also it doesn't make sense because her story is really incoherent so it's like well I want to know what the original version was because even if it was the same maybe it would have been better because it would have made more sense (laughs) yeah but even with a different ending like the movie is already fucked it doesn't not the characters don't make any fucking sense so Beast the Nicholas Holt character First goes, so Raven gets killed early on when Jean Grey kind of loses control, right? Mm -hmm. And then Beast, who's always been in love with her, but they don't really ever do anything about it, which is boring, that is really upset and finally says to Charles, who he's been like loyal to the whole time, like, this was your fault, you did all of this, blah, 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 which is correct. But then he then like runs off to Magneto and is like, we should kill Jean. And then rapidly again changes his mind is like but it's not her fault and i was like none of that makes any sense you have jumped from one thing to the other like five times because it's convenient and like all the characters behave this way like they just haven't thought about anything and also there was such like an obvious opportunity for magneto to do interesting stuff in character there right because 
He has obviously by far the most interesting role in the movie, and I don't just say this because I am a lifelong Magneto stan, although partly that's that. But he finally, this film, introduces the concept of Genosha, which is in the comics the um, kind of mutant separatist city, or it's, it's an island basically. And in this, it's kind of quite a small commune rather than being a big sort of Wakanda type place. He's there. He's like the most peaceful he's ever been in the franchise. He's finally settled down. He's found a way to be free. And basically he and Xavier have both found a kind of happy ending for mutants in their own particular ways. But they're both aware that that could end at any moment because they know that like the human public image of mutants and the X-Men could change at the drop of a hat, which it does because of Jean. So that is like the political undercurrent in this film, which is like the only interesting aspect they have of the story and is like very much an undercurrent. But basically when like Jean kind of kills Raven by accident, she goes to Magneto um, to be like, oh, can you help me? And obviously because uh, Raven was kind of his girlfriend or at least his sidekick for like a period in the movies, Morgan's just rolling her eyes and I agree. <laughs> uh, then obviously she doesn't want to tell him that she's killed someone. But at that point, you either could have had a point there where Magneto is like, I'm going to protect you because that's my duty as a mutant leader. Or he tries to use her powers himself in some way or help her control her powers, which is what I was expecting to happen because that is what would make sense for him. He is someone who's like, oh, you've got this huge superhuman power, you need help. And then the conflict there would be like, how long can this continue before he finds out that the person she killed is Mystique? Because there was even a point in that story where the US military comes over to Genosha and is like, where's Jean? She's killed all these police. And I was like, that's such a good way to phrase this because Magneto at that point is going to think Jean feels guilty because she killed a bunch of random human police. And he's fully in favour of killing human police. So he would have been like, well, that's fine, isn't it? And that's such a good emotional arc. And also it kind of gives someone the role of being the kind of semi-antagonist who is kind of encouraging her to accept a power that she can't control, which is what Jessica Chastain's character is doing in a more boring way. But instead, he's just like, you need to leave now. So she leaves and goes off to be with Jessica Chastain, who once again has no personality. And then there's like two action set pieces, both of which are boring. The first of which involves just them trying to cross a road. And the second of which involves them being kidnapped and then put on a train. And that was the point where I was like, I cannot believe this is the final sequence. I thought the train was going to somewhere more interesting. And it was like, oh no, that's the final battle, my old friend. That's it, buddy. Well, I always complain that action movies have too much action in them. Or like this type of action. Yeah, blockbuster action rather than yeah. action focused. Because they will just have like every... It's, I mean, J.J. Abrams has said this, that like the studio notes will always be like, every 15 minutes you have to have a set piece. And like, that's a terrible way to make a movie. It's really boring, whatever. And um, this is the only film of this type that I can remember thinking... Like, there's not enough action. Because just nothing fucking happens. It's really absurd that this film costs $200 million. The scene where they're trying to cross the street. <laughs> I couldn't fucking believe what I was seeing. They're trying to cross Fifth Avenue in New York to get to this, like, townhouse. Wow, I did not even know it was... Th- I just thought it was a random street. <laughs> Fifth Avenue. Like, near, the, near, near Central Park. And the ultimate culmination of this, which is hilarious is that magneto like pulls a subway train up from underground which is a very like dramatic thing that he would do which fine but they However, shoot it in a boring way yes shot in, the whole thing is shot in a boring way like again simon kinberg cannot do this i fully believe that the two of us with zero experience could have done a better job making this movie than was made i mean the thing that's wildest to me in terms of sorry for interrupting again but i just want to say 
the thing that's wild to me here is that this film is set in the 90s. Each of the prequels is set in a different historical period where they do very easy pastiche music and fashion cues, which are crowd-pleasing and enjoyable for everyone. And in this film, it's to just say, this film's set in 1992. No one even has 90s hair. They don't have like a fun needle drop. It's just set in what could easily be the present day without cell phones. Terrible. Ridiculous. Absurd. Raven wears some 90s shoes, and that's about it. Like, what are you doing? But anyway, so the subway comes up out of the ground. The closest subway to where they are located (laughs) is three long blocks east. So did he drag the subway all the way from Lexington Avenue across Madison Avenue? I can't believe this is your complaint. I love this. Across Fifth Avenue and bring it up. Like, it just doesn't make... And this of is all the, the gripes, Morgan. <laughs> Elizabeth, our friend Elizabeth and I were discussing this because it's one of those things where obviously if you don't live in New York, this would never occur to you. But many people are familiar with the geography of New York City. Well, it's like when Thor took the underground in Thor 2. <laughs> but it's, it's the sort of thing where it's just like, it's just so stupid, right? Like, if they had conceived of a set piece that actually made any sense... This would you wouldn't have to get to this point of being like, oh yeah, maybe he'll bring up the subway from underground. Like, wh- why? Why though? It's so dumb. It's so dumb. This was the point at which in the movie I was like, I really can't take this anymore. Like, I really, really enjoyed all the stuff with Magneto because who who doesn't really? But that was the only part of the film that I could derive any pleasure from. It was quite punishing to me. There were like twenty people in the theater for this oh, yeah. on the opening night. This it movie made- is a flop. million this weekend. That's bad. That's real bad. Do you know what's really ignominious? For me personally. So the scene where the subway car, the end of that action scene, is the point where I, an adult, 29 years of age, began to cry. (laughs) Real tears. (laughs) Which I felt as a journalist I would have to mention in my review because it is true that this film did make me cry. And um, it was 100% because of all of the allegorical stuff that was set up in previous films and the fact that I'm very emotionally invested in political storytelling. But at that point, kind of the, the that action scene ends with all of the main characters being taken in by essentially ice, but for mutants. And they're all kind of collared with mutant, like shock collars, they can't use their powers, and then put on this train. And this heavy-handed malarkey got me in the little sensitive heart of my heart. And I was just like, this is really stressing me out. At any moment, the world can turn on you. And I was just like, this would have been so good in a film that was even slightly competently made. <laughs> so this, that was the moment where I, it lost me 100%. We had opposite reactions. You know what, Morgan? I fully respect this opinion because objectively, you are correct. <laughs> well, because that was the point where I got really aggravated. Because on one level... Of course you're going to have, as I did, the reaction of like, oh my god, that's a horrible image. But I got really aggravated because I was like, if they had just fucking made an actual Trump-era X-Men movie, this could have been so good, right? Like, if they had just done it. It wouldn't, I mean, obviously it's a big studio blockbuster movie. Like, they're not going to make a truly incendiary political statement. But like, even the other X-Men movies do 
do some, like, especially like the ones that came out in the early 2000s, they have like very direct coming out stories and that sort of thing. Like it is possible to do something that is a Trump era allegory of that type and not have it be, you know, massively controversial. You know, if you can have fucking Black Panther, you can have a politically competent X-Men film. (laughs) Right. And one of the big appeals of X-Men has always been that they are fundamentally political. And as you said, the movies have always kind of had a fraught relationship with that because they're so white and recently also very male. But even when they're, I mean, people were discussing this recently on Twitter. Um, Even when they're not good, they're often more engaging than slightly better in quotes superhero movies because they are actually about something which most superhero movies they, these they days resonate aren't. and i think it's, right. it's like the way they're talked about as well i feel like the especially with the prequels there's like less kind of public recognition of how actually popular they are because it's not like these are there's a lot of blockbusters that come out and sell a lot of tickets like jurassic world or something but ultimately don't have any kind of lasting emotional impact in the audience you know obviously that's something people talk about a lot with avatar but i think there's just lots of you know blockbusters that people enjoy for five minutes and forget and with you know the original x-men trilogy really really resonated with the generation of people in a way that a lot of other superhero movies didn't and even kind of the earlier McCoy uh, McAvoy Fassbender films also did the same you know and that's the thing about like the X-Men right it is a fundamentally different kind of story than the stuff you get in the MCU where the quality level is on average higher and like they can do like consistently well-made films that fit a very exacting formula and like if you've got a great director you can end up with a really good movie with Black Panther and otherwise you end up with a film like Doctor Strange that gets better reviews than it deserves because people are just like their standards are like fitting the correct expectations for that movie right but like you're right people love the X-Men they really resonate emotionally which is why I'm crying in this piece of shit (laughs) I think it's been slightly sort of underappreciated for like our generation or maybe slightly older. And I didn't see those early movies when they came out. So I wasn't initially sort of in this wave of people, but our general age cohort, sort of like the millennial cohort, fucking love those movies. Like they're really, really popular. And I know people who are not like us who love those movies. Like they really hit with people in a really big way. That is why they have sort of lingered for as long as they have, even when the rest of the sort of culture seems to have moved on in a certain way. And it's frustrating to then watch the sort of potential get squandered, right? Yeah. Because this is the one of all, I mean, Apocalypse is also not good, Yeah. but this is the one that felt the least political to me at all. Like they do that image of them getting taken off, but the actual story has nothing to say about anything. Right? Like, there's just, there's nothing. And it would have been so easy for them to do a story that is more about that. Right? Like, just go for it. Oh my god. The first class literally begins at Auschwitz. Like, it's already there in your movies. Just do it. Oh my and god. And the fact that they literally had this set up with the two factions, the respectability politics faction, where you literally have at the beginning of the movie, Charles Xavier giving a speech to his X-Men where he's just undermining the fact that they're superheroes. Because instead of him being like, you've done a fantastic job saving these humans from a shuttle disaster, he's like, you've done a fantastic job proving to humanity that we are worth protecting and that we're worth keeping part of society. And that is like such a moving concept. And it is just like so succinct and it works so well. And it was so poorly executed. And then you have 
Magneto in Genosha, which is like one of the most compelling things in the X-Men comics to me and to a lot of people I expect. And it's not really examined kind of the, the fact that he's got this mutant commune is like really interesting as well. And the fact that the only way he sees to survive is to be separate from humanity. And then the first thing you see is the fact that that is incredibly fragile because the US government can just send a bunch of helicopters in there at any moment. And both of those concepts are a perfect continuation of the story we had before. And they just kind of abandon them both while also giving a really cat-handed story to Dark Phoenix. Yes. And it's like, how can you do this? How can, is there no one in the world is a script editor, I suppose? I mean, the script for this was so bad that it honestly felt to me like it would have been less effort to make it slightly better than it was, which is really saying something. And it is not easy to write a good screenplay. Like, it really, really isn't. But he's, he's written some. Right. Like, it, whenever a really good movie comes out, and I don't even fully grasp this because I'm not a person who works in film, but I know enough and I'm sort of on the edges enough to know that like it is a miracle when a really good movie gets made. But this movie was so bad that I genuinely thought like this was effortfully bad. Like how did this happen? And it seemed like the sort of thing where the stuff happening inside the studio, it just gets so tunnel vision-y that they have lost all conception of the outside world and also like what quality yeah. is, right? The two prongs of like the behind the scenes stuff is like obviously at the same time as this was like the lead up to the Disney Fox merger and also yes. the fact that Brian Singer had like finally been outed as a sexual predator and then they had to like replace him with a different director, which was going to happen anyway. Like there was no way he was ever going to be directing this movie. But part of the reason Jennifer Lawrence was like, I'm only coming back if Kinberg is directing is pres because presumably she thought that Kinberg was the only option rather than yes. them recruiting someone else. And I assume it was just like sort of legacy. Here's someone who has like extensive experience within the franchise. And also there's like a dearth of, you know, blockbuster directors who are seen as reliable but that's just like a microcosm of how stupid this is. Because like, clearly he is not a director. He is very much a screenwriter. And he was doing double duty on this and fucked up both. Um, well, so. and, like Matthew Vaughn gave some interview where he said that he wanted to or would have done... Well, he wanted to do a trilogy of, of right, Dark Phoenix which movies. would have been so much better. But I assume that that got next because of the Disney merger. Mm. And then the whole thing just sort of gets swallowed up by... Disney and <laughs> the corporate politics, which is unfortunate. I do have one really good behind the scenes story though, Morgan, which I think you'll please, enjoy. Please do share. So Sophie Turner, as you may know from her many social media posts and paparazzi photos, is an avid jeweler. Yes. As in she loves to smoke her vape pen, the jewel. Nothing to do with jewels. Yes. But yes, she loves the jewel. <laughs> and um, there's this great interview with her and Jennifer Lawrence where they're kind of talking about the pivotal scene where a character, which is of course Jennifer Lawrence's character, dies and then Sophie Turner has to cry. And Jennifer Lawrence was like, yes, it's a really powerful performance. The way we did that is um, Sophie's dialect coach took her jewel away and then she cried. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, you're all taking this precisely as seriously as it should be taken. <laughs> yes. God bless Gen Z. You know, like, good for you, <laughs> young lady. Yeah, it was interesting to sort of witness the... Like, I was listening to podcasts, et cetera, last week that were all like, yeah, you know, this is so smart. From, it was like a strategic move from Sophie Turner. Like, she's got the end of Game of Thrones, and this is going to be her, her, like, her big film. Also, this film was meant to come out, like, a fucking year ago. Right. And I was like, Sophie Turner's going to be fine. But this is not, like, a big 
big hit people after don't the know this film Thrones. exists people do not right. know this film they have barely promoted it compared to another film like compared to endgame like this film barely exists in the promotional circuit right and no one wants to see it because it's bad so you know and also because everyone's like who right because no one actually remembers x-men apocalypse the main thing i remember is there's a really fantastic scene where charles xavier is wearing like a lavender colored sweater and is just kind of languishing like a naiad on a pile of rocks and he looks like a member of duran duran it's fantastic that and magneto um blowing up auschwitz Oof. were the two things Yikes. that i recall yes that's that too memorable for two very different reasons <laughs> oh oh and the third thing which i have referenced many times is when the the uh the police show up with their inexplicable wooden bows and arrows <laughs> to shoot his family <laughs> Because if they had guns, he'd be able to stop them. So it has to be a wooden bow and arrow. Abysmal. But see, like that movie is really, really bad. But I remember watching it and just finding it. There is entertainment. It was value. entertaining. Yeah. Whereas this one, I just was like, oh my god. Which is sad because I love these movies so much, but it just felt really, really dire to me, and it made me want to go back and watch the first one instead, which is very flawed but also just a lot of fun. And really charming, and the performances are great. I find it quite telling that this film is under two hours, which is rare for a film of this type. And when I saw the runtime, I was immediately like, how much literally unwatchable material was cut from this? (laughs) Yes. And then they tack on this fucking epilogue at the end that's all about, like, Eric and Charles, like, retiring together. <laughs> I was like, I love this. You've just fucking stuck it on for the fanfic fans. It's like, yeah, Xavier's just going to move to Genosha and they're friends again. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds about right. And also hilarious. I mean, it, literally, Eric, like, shows up with, like, his portable chessboard to, like, Paris, where Charles is hanging out. And they, like, they haven't, they basically haven't spoken all movie. They've exchanged like five lines of dialogue and then they're like, oh yeah, let's retire together. And I was like, you have not earned this at all. I also feel like that may have been a reshoot because during that whole scene, I was like, oh, yeah. Charles, the back of Charles Xavier's head is so perfectly smooth and egg-like. I was like, this looks like it's been CGI. And then afterwards I was like, did they have to erase his hair? Yes. Absolutely reshot. 100%. What a fiasco. The whole thing. Really, I mean, so often the fanfic is better, but this was one of those cases where I was like, really, truly, the fanfic is better. Like, so much. And, you know, comics, obviously, but like, ooh. I can't believe Jennifer Lawrence is still making these. It's unreal. Well, she's done now. Oh, no, I know that. But, like, the fact that she went on even even beyond the first one was only because she was, like, contractually obligated. (laughs) Well, they negotiated together, yes? Yeah. They were like, we're only coming back if all three of us or all four of us are coming back. Yeah, and, and negotiated for a ton of money. Because they, they all signed contracts for three. Mm-hmm. And then for this one... Well, this is also what's so weird. that like they, all, they paid them a ton of money to come back to do this movie. And then it was so sort of bad and insignificant. You would think if they had gone through the trouble of saying, like, yes, we're going to pay you all this money to come back and do the last one, that it would have felt... That's what really confused me about Jennifer Lawrence's role, because she like her role was more quote unquote powerful. Like she has this deeply embarrassing line about how it should really be the ex women because the women are really saving all the men in this team, which oh is like the cringiest thing so in the bad. whole world. So bad. Appalling. The most unearned thing in the film as well. Because it's like the whole history of this franchise is undervaluing the female characters, so fuck off. Um but also it's like I guess she was just like then part of the negotiation was like, oh, I'm only going to have to film a few scenes because you're going to kill me off early, which is like the classic sort of 
you know, it's sort of a Han Solo move, right? It's like, I'll come back for only for one fucking movie. Yeah. But it's like, her role wasn't actually good. So it's like, well, what was she doing? And she still had to put on all the stupid makeup. I guess she bought another house. Yeah. Which, you know, respect to you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I do not recommend this film. <laughs> Don't go see it. Go watch Days of Future Past, which I think is highly underrated. Rarely have I had such a pure entertainment experience in the cinema as watching Days of Future Past. That was not well reviewed and it genuinely confused me at the time and still confuses me now because I think it's a good movie. It's fun as hell. It's because it's really weird. People don't get how weird the X-Men are. It's like, they should be. The timeline shouldn't make sense. There should be 14 different types of costume in this movie. (laughs) A fun film. Highly enjoyable. Better than this garbage. So, R.I.P. the X-Men. They're going to be in the Avengers movies now. Yeah. Which is set. End of an era. Uh, Next week, we will be discussing, at the request of a generous patron, the Australian classic film Muriel's Wedding, which I watched recently, uh, actually not because of this request. I had watched it anyway, and then we got the request around three days later, so it felt very serendipitous. And I'd never seen it before, and I thought it was absolutely delightful. So I'm really excited to talk about it. For those of you not familiar, this is a film from 1994. It was Tony Collette's first movie, I believe. And she plays this sort of like languishing teenager who tries to escape her life in remote Australia and um, steals her father's money and runs away with it to the city and there's a weird arranged marriage and she has a cool best friend and it's all sort of farcical and there's a lot of ABBA and she wears bad clothes and it's just a really delightful sort of late teen you know girl movie and uh, I loved it so check that out and uh, we'll be back with that next week thank you so much as ever for listening if you want to check out our Patreon content, including a mini-sode we did on Rocket Man, which is a better film than the film we talked about Rocket this Man's week. so fun. Yes. You can find that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing at The Daily Dot, including my review of this movie, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.